good morning, and uh, welcome to Life Together here at Kankakee First. We are in uh, week two of a series titled Peculiar. We're going to try and say it again. Say it with me. Peculiar. Okay, we're getting better at that. Um, at least I'm not having you say Greek. Andrew would have you say Greek, right? So uh, if you missed uh, last week or if you are visiting with us today, I would encourage you uh, to check out our website, uh, k3naz.org, or check out our podcast, Kankakee First Messages on iTunes. Listen to the first week of the series later uh, to help you fill in some of the gaps. You're kind of coming into the middle of a conversation, um, and that will be helpful to you. The key thought last week, or rather the key question that was posed, uh, was this. What if heaven is not a destination to await, but a reality to be pursued? Now, I'm aware that, uh, that in this room there is a variance of opinion regarding exactly what was meant by that question. Some were intrigued, challenged, encouraged by that question, felt like it was hopeful. Some, felt, uh, some were bothered, upset, discouraged by that question and felt like it was hopeless. And I'm guessing some of you fell in the middle and some of you may have just been asleep. Um, a friend in this church uh, once gave me one of the best zingers I've ever heard, he said, and he's going to know exactly who he is right now. Uh, he has this deep, smooth voice, and one time I told him, like, man, you could, you could read me bedtime stories and just put me to bed. And he said, that's, that's really funny, because I feel the same way about you. Whenever you start to preach, I fall asleep too. <laughs> like, well played. The reality is, any time that we begin to talk about something like heaven, uh, we can expect a variety of, of viewpoints to kind of bubble to the surface, because there are so many different thoughts and feelings on the matter. Um, and that's okay. Uh, that really is okay. Uh, there is room for every single one of us in the kingdom of God, right, together. Ultimately, I think what Jesus is, is most concerned about is how do we, how do we uh, work together in that disagreement? Can we disagree well? And that's what sets us apart ideally, from the rest of the world, right? Can we disagree well? For the sake of clarity, before we jump into Jesus' words for us in this week, uh, I want to recap a few things from last week uh, together. As I said a minute ago, the key thought to chew on was, what if heaven is not a destination to await, but a reality to be pursued? And I want to first clarify uh, what I wasn't saying, or suggesting maybe with that question. It wasn't meant to imply uh, that there is no heaven. Um, I mean, we wouldn't have a whole lot to talk about last week if that was the case. It wasn't meant to imply there is no heaven. It wasn't meant to imply that heaven only exists in the here and the now, or that it isn't an actual reality. Uh, it wasn't meant to imply that followers of Jesus uh, who have died uh, or who will die do not go to be with him in this heavenly realm after death. And it wasn't meant to imply that there will be no future earthly return of the Jesus that we worship. And, and so, uh, just to be plain, if I said anything uh, that made it sound that way or that implied any of those things, I just I want to tell you that that was unintentional on my part, and, and I apologize for any confusion that may have caused. Um, to put some skin on it for you, um, it was only a few weeks ago that I stood in this very spot and officiated my own grandmother's funeral. Um, and I shared on that day with my family and my friends that uh, I believe with everything in my heart that my grandmother has met Jesus and that she has heard the words that every Christian longs to hear, well done, good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of your master. I believe that my grandmother is with Jesus right now in that heavenly realm, which is not here yet. So here's a quick summary of what I was trying to suggest. And if you, if you missed last week, um, try and hopefully this will catch you up. God's design was always that heaven and earth would be one. And that's how they were created, and that's how they existed, until man's rebellion caused a rift between them. Heaven 
the realm where God's will is perfectly done, was no longer compatible with an earth where humanity wished for its own will to be done. And what was once a combined set of realms has now become two separate realms, heaven and earth. And that remained true until Jesus showed up and started proclaiming that the kingdom of heaven is here, kind of. Not fully, but here. Already, but not quite yet, both here and there. And he became the bridge between heaven and earth. And the story of God is all about restoration, right? Jesus began telling people that God wants to restore and heal the rift between heaven and earth and bring them back fully together again. And ever since, heaven and earth have been on this collision course with one another. One day, Jesus will return to earth once and for all. And heaven and earth will be completely and perfectly restored and reunited Those who are dead and those who are alive in Christ will be resurrected to new and perfected bodies and to live in that perfect shalom with Jesus. And in the meantime, we live in this already but not yet kind of tension where where heaven and earth kind of sometimes overlap, um, and Jesus has tasked us with pursuing that overlap by living, as he said, on earth as it is in heaven. We have the confidence that we will experience heaven one day after we die or when Jesus returns, uh, but we are not content to wait until then to do so. And so as a coach would say it very simply, we're going to practice the way we're going to play. So the natural question then becomes, how do we do that? How do we live into the heavenly realities now while we await the full reunion of heaven and earth when Jesus returns? And the reality is Jesus gives us dozens and dozens of examples during his ministry. The next couple of weeks, I just want to talk about a few, because uh, I think that will give us plenty uh, to chew on. So, so with that, let's jump in and talk about uh, what Jesus has to say for us today. So April 20th, 1999. Uh, many of you remember that date. Several of the people in this direction were not alive uh, when that happened yet, right? Um, I was in seventh grade, and uh, I still remember walking into my math class that afternoon to find out that Eric Harris and Dylan Klebold had entered their high school in Columbine, Colorado, um, and gunned down a few dozen of their classmates, killing 10 of them ultimately. It was a horrific scene. <laughs> the country uh, together was reeling. There were so many questions. How could this have happened? And, and how do we reconcile in our mind this idea that these children and these families, some of their lives have been forever altered, some of their lives were taken from them. And before the nightmare that day was over, um, the two young men decided that they would turn their guns on themselves uh, and they would add their own names to the list of the casualties. And to many, that added insult to injury because the two would never have to face the earthly consequences or ramifications of their actions along the way. They would never have to face the survivors. They would never have to go and and meet the families of the victims. Justice for the pain, the devastation, the death, the horrors that they caused, it seemed in that case, was cheated a little bit. And unfortunately, that's a scene that we have become way too familiar with over the last last couple of decades. That same, a similar scene played out seven years later um, in in a small village in Pennsylvania on October 2nd, 2006, a man named Charles Roberts IV stormed into a one-room schoolhouse in an Amish community of Pennsylvania, and over the course of the next 40 minutes or so, uh, he would take 10 girls ages 6 to 13 hostage. Um, Eventually, he would shoot eight of them, and and five of those those shootings would be fatal. And as police advanced on the schoolhouse, um, 
Mr. Roberts did the same thing that the two men in Columbine did, uh, and, uh, and he shot himself. And once again, it seemed like justice had been stolen from those who would need it most. The simplest definition of justice is righting wrongs. Something in us craves that. We need that. We need to know that in some way the wrongs in our lives are going to be made right. Something in us perceives that, that if, if wrongs are never righted, if there's never any uh, consequences for, the, for wrong actions, that we kind of risk devolving into this anarchy, right, where anything goes and no one is ever held responsible for their actions. Whether it's interpersonal conflict, whether it's a social justice issue, whether it's tragedies just like the two that I described, we need justice to be served. I believe that justice is central to the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel of Jesus is the good news that God is restoring creation. And he is making all things new through the person of Jesus Christ. And that includes seeing the wrong in this world made right. The hope of heaven is that justice is going to reign and everything will once again be right in the world. And so today we're going to take a look at a few statements from Jesus. They're from the Sermon on the Mount, uh, and I think they speak directly to our pursuit and our need for justice. If you were here last week, I gave you the homework assignment to read the Sermon on the Mount. I was super encouraged by the number of you who told me you actually did. Um, I guess maybe I had low expectations, but, uh, but I'm really glad that you did. So uh, for those of you who did, this, is, uh, this should not be new. Uh, and so if you want to grab your Bibles, if you want to take out your phones, it's going to be on the screen. We will be in Matthew chapter 5 today, and we'll be starting in verse 38. Hear the words of Jesus. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. These are the words of Jesus. Now, I don't know about you, but I have a love-hate relationship with this passage. On the one hand, I love how, how these few powerful statements probably encapsulate the Christian kingdom ethic maybe more than any others that Jesus had to share. And on the other hand, they are undoubtedly some of the toughest teachings across all of Jesus' ministry because they challenge our deep-seated need for justice. I mean, for a minute, put yourself in the shoes of one of the parents who lost their elementary-aged daughter to senseless violence. Turn the other cheek? Are you kidding me? What kind of perverted justice is that? How does it seem right to ask those parents of those girls to just turn the other cheek and ignore what happened to them? But perhaps there's something deeper going on here. Perhaps Jesus wasn't advocating for his people to just be doormats, to be passive pushovers. And in order, to, in order to be sure, we're going to have to dig a little bit deeper into what these statements have to say. What is Jesus really saying here? And to do that, we're going to have to look at some of the cultural and historical realities that underlie the statements he was making that, get, that are totally lost on us as 21st century uh, Americans. So let's, uh, we're going to look at each one in order. The first one uh, is this. He said, if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. Now it's important to note that Jesus does not say, if anyone slaps you on the cheek, He says, if anyone slaps you on the right cheek. Now, the world is predominantly right-handed, okay? So just try and envision this with me. If I'm facing you, 
and I want to slap you on the right cheek with my right hand, what do I need to do? What's it got to be? Somebody said it, a backhand, right? Now, this is kind of true in our culture as well, but it was certainly true in Jewish culture that uh, a backhand was much more than just a physical assault. A backhand in Jewish culture said, uh, you are less than human. It was a double insult. Like, you are not even worthy of the front palm of my hand. I am not only assaulting you, I am insulting your character, your dignity as a human being. Hmm. We'll come, to, we'll come back to that. The second statement makes, that Jesus makes, he says, if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. Now, um, I don't know how many of you own a tunic, um, at least not in the, I don't know if any of you own like a, you know, first century Middle Eastern tunic. I don't. Um, it's basically underwear. I do have underwear. Uh, <laughs> just wanted to be clear, I guess. Uh, um, and the thing is that even the poorest of the poor uh, in that day would have had a change of tunics, right? A change of underwear, so to speak. Um, there, was, there was this uh, concession that was kind of built into Jewish law. Uh, I won't say Jewish law. We'll just say law. Where if, uh, if, if I needed to sue you, whether I'm a tax collector or maybe you've wronged me in some way, shape, or form, I need to sue you and you don't even have enough money to pay me, I can sue you for the shirt off your back. I can literally sue you for your tunic, for your underwear, right? Which is crazy. Um, but uh, the cloak was different. Everybody probably had a change of tunics. The cloak was different. The cloak, most people probably just had one, even if you were rich. And that cloak was part of your identity, first of all. You wore it over the top of everything, and it was a very important part of life. Uh, I don't remember if it's Exodus or Leviticus, but somewhere uh, after God has brought the people out of, Israel, or out of Egypt, uh, he's kind of giving them uh, the way of life that he wants them to live. And at one point he says, uh, basically, if you're going to take somebody's cloak as a pledge from them, um, whether it's a deposit or just a promise, uh, make sure they get it back before the evening. You can't even keep it through the night. And the reason for that is that the cloak also often uh, functioned as somebody's blanket. It's what you slept under. It was a very important part of life, right? So, so Jesus says, if someone would sue you and take your shirt, give them your, give them your cloak also. We'll come back to that one too. The last, the last statement that he makes is this. He says, if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. And this is a statement that as 21st century Americans is totally lost on us because we can't put ourselves in the shoes of what it's like to be in first century Palestine, right? Because at the time, Rome was the world power. Rome owned everything. They dominated everything. And they were never going to let you forget that they owned everything because no matter where you went, if you were under Roman occupation, there were going to be guards stationed all over the place as a constant reminder of who's really in charge, right? Who really has the power here? And, and part of the Roman military code is that at any point, uh, a Roman soldier could walk up to you. You know, they didn't have Hummers. They didn't have all, I mean, they carried their stuff, right? And say, uh, you're going to carry my stuff for the next mile. Take my pack, take my stuff. We're walking together, and you're going to carry it for me. And you couldn't refuse. It's actually, uh, if, you, if you think about the passion story, if you think about what led Jesus to uh, the cross, right? There's this part where one of the soldiers says, hey, you, Simon of Cyrene, carry that cross. And that's exactly what's happening here. He's saying, I'm not going to do it. You're going to do it, and you have to listen to me, right? And so when Jesus says, if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles, that's what he's referring to. And he, and he says one mile because even the Roman military code wouldn't allow, them to, wouldn't allow them to ask you to carry something more than one mile. Would not allow that. And so Jesus is saying, well, go with them two miles. We're going to come back to those. In each of those three scenarios, there is no ambiguity over who was, who was wronged or oppressed. 
you or you all, the listener, are being wrong. You are being oppressed. The person doing the slapping, the person doing the suing, the person doing or forcing the labor, these are the oppressors. In fact, at the beginning of the verse, Jesus says, do not resist an evil person. And so he goes on to say, and these are, the, these are evil people. Let me give you some examples of who, what this evil looks like, right? Being backhanded, being sued for the shirt off your back, being treated as a slave. These are injustices. Injustice must be served. And yet, in every scenario, Jesus requires of us a very unnatural response to the evil being done. Let's look at the first one again. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. What Jesus is saying is not, he's not advocating that you just stand there and take it, that you're completely passive, that you're some sort of pacifist that says, nope, it's whatever, like, you can do whatever you want to me, I'm not going to fight back. But if I've been slapped on the right cheek, and I'm going to turn the other one, that means I've got to turn my face back to my, to my oppressor. And, it's, and what Jesus is saying is, um, make them look you in the eye. Make them look at you and your humanity and your dignity and say, you can slap me again if you want to, but you're going to look at me while you do it. You're going to see the injustice that you are bringing to this human person right here, that I am not subhuman, that I am a soul to be loved, right? He goes on to the next one. He says, if anyone uh, uh, would, wants to ta- sue you and take your shirt, tunic, uh, hand over your coat, your cloak as well. Um, in the Jewish way of life, nakedness was considered shameful, right? Um, but the shame primarily fell on either the one who caused the nakedness or the one who looked on the nakedness. And so, so what Jesus is saying is expose the greed. Show them what they're doing. If, if, they're, if they're so greedy as to sue you for your underwear, give it all to them and say, is this what you wanted? Is, is this what you're going to bring on me because of your greed? This is what you've done. Look upon what your greed has forced in me, this shame. He goes on and says, if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. And we talked about that a little bit. Um, the question is simply this. Hey, am I more than just a tool to be utilized for you? Can you see my humanity enough to let me walk with you another mile? Maybe get to know you? Or am I just someone to be used for your, for your purposes? Force them to come face-to-face with your humanity. To come face-to-face with what they're doing to your human dignity. Now, if you imagine yourself in the crowd, listening to Jesus, maybe you've experienced the greed or the hatred of the tax collectors. Maybe you have been asked by a Roman soldier to have to do exactly what Jesus described. You're probably incredulous, right? Again, are you kidding me, Jesus? This is not the kingdom that I signed up for. The kingdom that I signed up for is where you are the mighty, powerful king who puts the Roman Empire to shame to make Jerusalem great again, right? Not whatever this stuff is that you are suggesting here. Put it in current terms, not my Messiah, right? But this is what Jesus is teaching. In this group of teachings we call the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is laying out the manifesto of heaven. This is what heaven is like, he says. This is my kingdom. This is how God's will is done on earth as it is in heaven. And so that brings us to today's key thought, or again, it's a question, key question, which is simply this. What if true justice is found through love, not retaliation. What if true justice is found through love, not retaliation? As is so often the case, the words of Jesus here ask us to directly contrast with what we're used to in our world, right? Jesus is calling us to an ethic that is not of this world. It's a heavenly ethic, a peculiar ethic. 
an ethic where retaliation isn't just limited to an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but rather is prohibited entirely. Retaliation, Jesus says, however controlled or restricted, has no place in the Christian life. And Jesus wasn't all talk. Jesus walked that walk. Just like he taught, Jesus' response to, to injustice was never violent or aggressive, and his response was never, was, was never passive or dismissive. Jesus doesn't ignore injustice. He always addresses it, but he finds a third way, a way in which the oppressor is required to come face-to-face with the injustice, the harm, the hurt that he or she has created for another, in a way in which the human dignity of both parties or all parties involved is brought to the forefront. It is this peculiar type of response that led Jesus to flip a public accusation of adultery on its head and to make it the mirror through which these these scheming, bloodthirsty men came face-to-face with their own sin. It is this peculiar type of response that led Jesus as he hung executed by the, by the state on a Roman cross to say, Father, forgive them. It is this peculiar type of response that inspired Peter to say of Jesus, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. And when he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. It is this peculiar type of response that led Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. to admonish those who were fighting for their own human dignity to seek satisfaction, as he said, not by drinking from the cup of bitterness and hatred, but to conduct the struggle on the plain, high plane of dignity and discipline. It is this peculiar type of response that Nelson Mandela once said can free both the oppressed and the oppressor. The third way is peculiar. But Jesus calls his followers to be peculiar people. People who actively pursue the reality of heaven on earth as they await its full arrival. And Paul sums up this peculiar way of life in, in about as succinctly and beautifully as I, could, as I ever possibly could. He's writing a letter to the Roman Christians, and in Romans 12, here's what Paul says. He says, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. I began earlier to tell you the story uh, of the Amish schoolhouse shooting in Pennsylvania, but I haven't finished it yet. Maybe you've heard the end of the story. If you haven't, buckle up. The Amish families who lost their daughters to this evil, senseless violence had every reason to drink from that cup of bitterness and hatred. They had every reason to be angry. Not only were they suffering the loss of their daughters, the unthinkable reality that I am never going to watch my daughter grow up, but that coward who took their lives, he took his own, robbing them of any opportunity to exact justice, to bring about some sense of retribution. But these families were not working from a worldly or a civic sense of justice. They were working from a Christian idea of justice. They weren't seeking a retributive form of justice, a justice that is bent on retribution for those who have wronged you. But they were after a restorative sense of justice, justice which seeks to restore the dignity and peace of all involved because God's story is all about restoration. While they believe their daughters were in heaven with Jesus, they also believe that their mandate as followers of Jesus was to, live, was to pursue heaven on earth in the here and the now. And so here's what they did. The first thing they did was they comforted Marie Roberts, the now widow of the shooter, and her three children on the loss of their husband and their father. Within hours of the shootings, one of the neighbors, one of the Amish neighbors was seen uh, for a whole hour just hugging Charles's father as he sobbed at the loss of his son. 
Second, the families extended the forgiveness that they could no longer extend to Charles because he wasn't around. They extended it to his wife, Marie, instead. Third, they took all the charitable giving that was coming in to them for relief, um, and they diverted all of that to Marie, now a single mother, and her three children to make sure they were taken care of. Fourth, in an incredible display of grace, about 30 people from that community attended the funeral of Charles Roberts. And then last but not least, um, to at least one of those funerals, those families invited Marie Roberts uh, to the funerals of their own daughter. That is unbelievable. And that story moves me nearly to tears every time I hear it. There is no doubt that that response was peculiar. It certainly wasn't normal. All across the country, people looked sideways at that response. They wondered, how can you offer forgiveness to somebody who's never asked for it? It didn't make sense to people. But it's the kind of response that Jesus calls us to pursue in the face of injustice. In each one of those statements, Jesus is setting someone up to be the enemy, right? The one who slaps, the one who sues, the one who demands labor. Each is naturally an enemy of us. But the problem with that whole enemy thing is that Jesus then goes on later and says, oh, by, by the way, love your enemies. Because they are people to, that I love. They are people in whom the image of God still exists, and they are people to be won over by love. What if true justice is found not through love, or through love not retaliation. There's an old saying that goes like this, an enemy is just someone whose story you've never heard. And Jesus seems to agree because he's asking us to go the extra mile with ours, to spend time with them, to get to know our oppressors, to search for their humanity in the midst of their evil, to win them over through love, through this third way, through this peculiar way. Let me share with you one last story um, of this kind of enemy love, this heavenly uh, justice I was told this story by, uh, by a guy named Jason, uh, who is a project manager. Students have heard this story plenty of times. Sorry, guys. Um, uh, who is a project manager at, uh, w- with Forge Flint, an organization that we have, Cindy mentioned it earlier, we have partnered with for a couple of years now as a church. And um, the first summer that we went to go work with them, uh, they had, we were going to be the first of six teams that came through throughout the summer. And uh, just about a week before we, we showed up, they went and they bought about $2,000 worth of landscape and gardening um, equipment, equipment that was going to be used within these projects and well beyond. And about two days before we showed up, somebody broke into their storage shed and stole all of it before it had ever been used. And so I asked Jason, I said, Jason, what are you guys going to do about it? And, and, um, and he said, well, we're pretty sure we know who, who took it. I said, well, are you, I mean, are you going to go after them? Are you going to, are you going to try and get, get that back? What are you going to do? To which Jason replied, in a moment that I'll never forget, said, no, we're not going to go after him. Um, but we believe that one day he's going to be with us. And when he does, we just think he'll bring the tools with him. I was stunned to silence. What a peculiar response. What a perfect understanding of kingdom justice. What an image of good overcoming evil. And isn't that how God responds to us? We wrong him all the time. We fall short constantly. Does God pursue angry justice toward us? Is he angling to find satisfaction and knowing that we got what was coming to us? Or does Jesus instead choose love as the way? To believe that one day when we discover the depth of his love, that we also 
will want to change the way that we act. And if that's how Jesus responds, if that's how God views us, then what does that mean for us who are trying to follow in those footsteps? I'll say it again. What if true justice is found through love, not through retaliation? This week in small groups, um, you're going to have an opportunity to explore that idea a little bit. And I would encourage you to see those, those small groups, those Christ-centered communities as safe, judgment-free places where you can wrestle with these ideas together. You can push back against what you hear on a Sunday morning, uh, where you can work out your questions and your doubts together as a group. If you're not part of a small group yet, I would strongly encourage you to consider that. Um, you, can, you can sign up through our church website. You can, um, you can, as Cindy said, put a connection card in the offering plate or drop it by the office. We want everybody to experience life together in that kind of a way. For now, today, I ask you to consider this. Who are the enemies in your life? Where might Jesus be asking you for a peculiar response? And maybe enemy is too strong of a word, uh, but you are dealing with something. Anger, hurt, frustration towards someone who has wronged you. You've been insulted. You've been robbed of your dignity. You've been treated as less than human. Maybe that happened in the car on the way here. Or maybe that happened years ago when you're still holding on. To that, to that bitterness and that resentment, and you need that wrong to be righted. You need justice. Jesus calls us to lay down our right to retaliate and instead respond in a way that elevates the human dignity of all involved. He calls us to see those who have hurt us not as people to dismiss, not as people to write off, but sisters and brothers to be won over through honesty and love. He calls us to overcome evil with good. And that's just one of the ways that we pursue the story of the gospel and the reality of heaven on earth here and now. The beauty of the gospel is that God, in his pursuit of you, he chose self-sacrifice over bitterness. He chose love over resentment. And more than anything else, he wants to draw people to himself. But just like any loving father, if you've If you have an issue with one of his kids, then you've got an issue with him. If you wrong my daughter, you can apologize to me all you want, but until you've made things right with her, we're not going to be okay. We've all had times uh, where we haven't responded well. It's not natural to respond the way that Jesus calls us to. Jesus calls us to respond in this upside-down, peculiar kind of way. I mentioned last week uh, that our key verse for this series, I think it'll be up on the screen, uh, is, is Jesus' first statement in his public ministry is very simply this, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And as we prepare our hearts in this Lenten season, in these coming weeks, as we, as we march toward Holy Week, or towards Good Friday, Easter Sunday, and celebrate the death and the resurrection of our Lord, I wonder if there are ways that we may need to seek repentance. Repentance for ways in which we responded out of anger instead of love, for ways in which maybe we've sought and planned retaliation for those who have wronged us. For ways in which we have let bitterness and hatred win out in our hearts. For ways that we have seen the one or the ones who have hurt us as enemies instead of brothers and sisters. And so as we close today, um, I want to provide a few moments uh, for us to contemplate those questions. A chance to consider if there is someone with whom you need to seek reconciliation. Someone who you need to seek peace with. Someone you need to fight for. Someone you need to love. Someone with whom you might need to walk that extra mile 
to hear their story. So we're going to play a video here, and, uh, and once it's finished, Josh is going to come up and, and close us. Um, and that's when the hard work begins, right, when we walk out of here. And maybe we have to go act on that. Maybe some of you have to do that in this room right now. I don't know what a picture of heaven that would be. But the words of this song are going to be very simple. So I would ask you in these moments, just listen, consider, and then act. I see my brother, I see my brother When I look into the face of my enemy I see my brother, I see my brother
powerful. Would you bow your heads with me and pray? Father, thank you for the powerful words that you've given us this morning. Thank you for the way that you've challenged us to look at justice through your eyes and to respond in a way that is so countercultural, to respond as a peculiar people. I pray that we would leave this place, when we leave this place, that you would give us the strength and the wisdom to live your story in our community, to live as a people that show and exhibit such grace that people would only look to you. We thank you for that, Father. Lord, and I pray for the the soccer banquet that Pastor Cindy prayed for earlier. Lord, we will have 140 people in our church this, this weekend. Lord, that many of which don't know you. Lord, I pray that you would be with Jeff Enfield as he brings the gospel message to those people. Pray that their hearts would be open and ready to receive your word, Father. Lord, as we go now and we leave, Lord, I just pray that you would give us the wisdom that we need to live out your love. Lord, we thank you and we ask all of this in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. You are dismissed to go.